Well, it was a little over three months ago that I was here um, in the candidate phase of my job application here for the youth minister position at DSC, and a lot has happened in the past three months. We've packed up our home in Austin and our three boys and moved here, and I've now taught seven weeks across the hall with the youth, and now I couldn't be more excited to be here with you in this pulpit for the 8th. Well, if you have your Bibles, open to the book of Matthew in the 5th chapter. Across the hall, the last three weeks, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. And I wanted to do this for a number of reasons. One, this is just a really, really great sermon, maybe one of the greatest from Jesus as we have it recorded in our Bibles. But also because this sermon is everywhere in our culture. It's one of President Obama's favorite go-tos when he was a senator in Illinois. When talking about the economy, he said we must build this house, this economy, on the rock, not the sand. The Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7. He often refers to the golden rule. We're going get, to get to there today. And in his defense of same-sex civil unions, he said, if people find that controversial, that he would just refer them to the Sermon on the Mount. So what is it that he's referring us to? And is he correctly interpreting it? So I've been told in the movie Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter, the audience is told, blessed are the pure in heart. One of the great beatitudes of Jesus in chapter 5. And then there are just these little pithy statements everywhere through here that are just inundated in our culture. We've got Ronald Reagan's favorite, a city on the hill, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, love your enemies, the Lord's prayer. And then the banner phrase of my generation, judge not lest you be judged, right? They're all here, But is this just a string of little pithy statements of Jesus, or is there some greater context and some greater argument that he's making? I think the latter is true, and so that's why we're going through all of it with the youth, and I'm understanding that I'm doing you a bit of disservice, being that we're just jumping in right in the middle of it. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 48 of chapter 5 today. Three weeks ago with the youth, we did an intro to the sermon, and then we looked at the Beatitudes, and then last week we looked at the light of the earth and salt of the world passage. So we're just jumping in there today, and I'm just going to warn you that each one of these little sections that we're going to look at this morning probably deserve a sermon or two or three or four all to their own. But I want to go through it quickly so we can get through all of it, so we can have more of a big picture, overhead, greater context view of this chapter. So we're going to move quickly through it. We're going to do a few things today. First, we're going to look at what Jesus means when he's talking about fulfillment. He says that he is the fulfillment of the law. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. And then after we do that, we're going to try to answer three questions. The same three questions that we're trying to answer every week across the hall with the Sermon on the Mount. And these three questions are, who are we? What ought we become? And how do we get there? So who are we? Who or what ought we become and how do we get there? So we're going to try to answer all three of those this morning. So, let's get started then. Read with me in verse 17. 
Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, what does this mean? There are whole books, whole commentaries devoted to these four verses, whole books devoted to just verse 17 of chapter 5. Believe me, I've tried to wade through some of them in the past few weeks. And there's a wide spectrum of interpretations. Hardly any agree with each other. So which is right? Is there a right interpretation? I think there is. We're going to try to arrive at a conclusion today. Well, as I talked a little bit in greater depth in our intro to the sermon a few weeks ago, Matthew tries to give fulfillment as one of his greatest themes. So it's not just this one little word in verse 17. It's a greater theme throughout his book, before and after the sermon. So in chapter 1, I think he's trying to portray Jesus in the genealogy as someone who's greater than Abraham, someone who's greater than David. And in chapters 1 and 2, he's trying to portray Jesus as someone who's greater than Moses. Someone greater than all of these Old Testament men of God is here. So who is he? Trent, last week, told us that Jesus says that someone greater than Jonah is here. So I think we can say that the life and story of Jonah exists for us to be prepared for who Jesus is. And I think that this is true for the entirety of the Old Testament. So he says that he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. When do we use this word abolish most often? Most often it's with the abolition movement in the American Civil War, right? And um, People wanted to end slavery. And with the Emancipation Proclamation, Abraham Lincoln abolished. He put an end to slavery. So it was no longer in effect any longer. So Jesus says that he's not come to do that. He's not Abraham Lincoln to the law, putting an end to it. He's come to fulfill it. Okay, so what does this mean? But he's also saying... He's not taking us back to the law either. This idea of fulfillment is something more than just allowing us to go back to it. One common interpretation of the law and Jesus, how he fulfills it, is that the law is a mirror for us, right? We see the law. We see that we can't obey obey it completely. It drives us to the cross. We trust in Jesus. And then he allows us to obey or obey more effectively the law of Moses, But I don't think this is what Jesus is saying either. He's saying that he's fulfilled the law. So let me ask you this question. Is the role of Aaron, that of the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament, is it abolished by the work of Jesus? No, he doesn't put an end to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. He fulfills it perfectly. It's no longer needed anymore Because now Jesus is the great high priest, the greater Aaron, 
and the greater sacrificial lamb, that the, sacrifice, the sacrificial system is no longer needed, so it's fulfilled in Jesus. And I think the same can be true of Aaron's brother Moses and what he represents in the law. So the writer of Hebrews in chapter 3 says that Moses, the law, was faithful in God's house. God appointed the law for a time to be useful for, for the building up of God's house. Paul says that the law was a pedagogue in chapter 3 of Galatians. It was a teacher for God's people, for us, to understand a little bit about God and ourselves. But now, that service in the house is now fulfilled. It's no longer needed anymore, because then Paul says in Galatians 3 and 4 that the the children have now become full-fledged sons and daughters of God. The pedagogue is no longer needed. So just as Aaron prepared us for Jesus' priestly role, Moses prepares us for Jesus' prophetic or judicial or law-giving role. And I don't think it's any accident that we have Jesus giving us this sermon on a mount, on a mountain. He's giving us a new law, just as Moses did in the Old Covenant. I had a seminary professor explain it like this. I don't know if you guys have ever made the drive to Disney World in Orlando. You're probably more likely to drive to Los Angeles and go to Disneyland, but it's a mandatory pilgrimage from all, for all Texans to make where I'm from, where we, you, at least once you have to make the drive to Orlando. And starting from about 100 miles out, there began to be billboards saying, it's coming. There's just maybe a mouse ears, maybe a Space Mountain billboard. And this, I think, is just terrible for parents because then the, parent, the kids think it's like right around the corner, but it's still like 100 miles away. But then it becomes more and more frequently, more and more regularly, and you're getting, you're getting more and more excited for Disney World. It's here. And then how silly would it be if when you got to Disney World and drove into the parking lot, you decided, you know what? I think I might be more happy and satisfied with just going back over to the billboards, turning the car around and getting out, you know, setting out a blanket with the family and having a picnic underneath one of the Mickey Mouse billboards. That is not what the billboards are for. The billboards are to point us, to prepare us, to get us excited for that which they're pointing us to. Disney World. The Old Testament Abraham, Moses, David, Jonah, the law, Israel itself exists to point us to their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. And then Jesus goes up onto a new mountain and he gives us a new law. The Mosaic law is swallowed up into the new law of Jesus like a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. Same essence, same DNA, but now it's reached its full maturity. So the law of Christ, we can say, is what Jesus has commanded us in the New Testament, what he exhibits for us in his life, and what the other writers of our New Covenant document, the New Testament, command us to do and to be, with Paul and John and Luke and the author of Hebrews. All of this is swallowed up into the new law of Christ, one that's even higher than, we're going to look at, than the law of Moses. I realize this is a lot, and we should spend four or five sermons just on these four verses, because it's a lot. And I may have raised more questions for you than answered, so if you have any questions, please call or email Trent 
at any time this week, because he would love to meet with you and explain this. And by the way, this is, this is not just the rogue view of the youth minister, but this is the view of the law and how it's fulfilled in Christ by the leadership here at DSC. So, if this is the new law that Jesus is about to give us, what is it and how, how, how does it apply to our life? So, we're going to look at those three questions now. So, who are we? And by that I mean, who are we by nature? Apart from the gospel, who are we as people? Well, Jesus says in verse 21, You have heard it said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So it seems as if the Pharisees considered themselves righteous or justified by before God as long as they didn't murder someone. They thought of themselves as loving towards those around them as long as they weren't murdering. But what Jesus is exposing to us and to them is that when your kids or your brother and sister or your parents really push that button and you respond in anger and use your temper and you're yelling or when the lady in front of you on the highway just won't drive fast enough and you can't get around her and you become impatient and you curse her. How could she drive so slowly? When a manager or a co-worker messes something up at work and you have to take the hit for it and you just feel nothing but contempt and hatred, Jesus is exposing that the same heart condition in an actual murderer is present in your heart right now. The same murderous impulse is there. He's saying that you are denying their worth and elevating yourself the same way a murderer might do. So Jesus tells us that while you may think that externally you're keeping the law just by not murdering someone, really, you're an angry murderer just the same. He's confronting our tendency to only care about the external. And likewise, in verses 27 through 30, he exposes, exposes us to be lustful adulterers. Again, we tend to only care about the external. So we think that we're justified as pure people, men and women, husbands and wives, as long as we don't go into an adulterous affair. My pastor in Austin said this, and at first I was a little taken aback. Taken aback because I thought what he said was a little too harsh. But now I think I agree with him. He said that your lust indicates that the only reason that you won't enter into a, an adulterous affair with that man or that woman that you're lusting after is because you're a coward. The only reason you won't enter into that affair is because you're afraid of what's going to happen to your wife and your kids, what your church family is going to think about you, what the society and people at your work are going to say about you. You're afraid of rejection. The only reason you are entering into that lustful or that adulterous affair is because you're scared. But the same adulterous impulses are there of the man who actually enters into that affair. We only care about what people think of us on the external. Now, that's our tendency, at least. 
And then in our divorce little section here, Jesus says that, well, under the Old Testament, Old Covenant way of being in Israel, a, a Jewish man could divorce his wife for nearly anything. Sexual, sexual immorality, yes, but also if she burned the food or the all-encompassing, she just didn't please him. So a Jewish man could appear to be righteous, appear to be following in accordance with the law, while he was completely selfish and sinful and harsh with his wife at home. Appearing to be one way, while what's true inside is not true. Again, only caring about the external, while what's inside is rotting. This oaths passage... He says, again, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, this is verse 33, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Why do we, why do we need to take oaths? When you, let's say you get home on a Tuesday from work and you tell the kids, hey kids, we're going to the zoo on Saturday. And your little son or daughter says, daddy, do you promise Why do they ask that? Because they've been burned by you before. (laughs) Because you've said, we're going to the zoo on Saturday before, and then you didn't do it. You didn't follow through with your words. So your children have come to expect and have come to need extra affirmation, extra confirmation that what you say is actually what you really mean. Why does the American judicial system require you to swear an oath that you'll tell the truth in the court of law? Because they know you're a liar. And they know that you will say whatever you have to to get off the hook to save your own hide or to save your buddy's hide. That's why they require us to say, we will tell the truth, and if I'm not telling the truth, I'm going to jail for a long time. We are liars apart from the gospel. You can call it exaggerating or being hyperbolic. I'm the king of hyperbole, so I need to temper that and maybe even even repent of it. But lying is generally always about either self-exaltation, making us appear to be something greater than we actually are, or self-preservation, making us appear to be something that we actually aren't. So again... Jesus seems to be confronting this idea that we only do something externally because of what it might appear to be. We do things with our actions and our words to somehow make us feel right or justified before God, while inside there's a heart of death and rot. Verses 38 through 42, Jesus says who we are is a prideful retaliator. We are people who are quick to defend our own honor. And of course, honor was maybe a bigger deal a few centuries ago. You've got Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr fighting to the death in a duel with pistols. Guys would fight duels with swords or pistols just if one's honor was affronted. But while we don't duel with pistols or swords anymore, why don't you go watch a group of high school boys and see what happens when somebody's manhood, toughness, his honor is challenged. Maybe you're thinking, oh, that was high school, but I don't really care about my honor these days. Well, 
Why don't you look at yourself when you're on the highway and you get cut off by someone and you spend the next 10 minutes two inches behind them tailgating to make sure that they know what they've done, that they unknowingly or perhaps even worse, perhaps even knowingly have cut off the most important driver on the highway. (laughs) The main character of this story. So you want to make sure that everyone knows the honor that is due to you. This is us. This is us. We are vengeful, retaliatory. And then summing it all up, in verses 43 through 48, Jesus shows us to just be unloving. We are just like the Gentiles, that is, those who are outside of God's covenant community, who only love if we'll get love back in return. We treat love like an investment commodity. And as long as the return on that investment is good, then we'll continue to invest in it, right? So if someone is, you know, continuing to serve you, to encourage you, to hang out, and you're good, good friends, and they're loving you back, then you will love them like crazy. But as soon as you find out that they have gossiped behind your back, that they have challenged you in some way, that they have said something hurtful or spiteful, then you are out, and you will try to find someone else to fill that loving back, that investment relationship. You'll invest that somewhere else. Well, what Jesus says is this is what all people do. This is us apart from the gospel. We are selfish and we only do something to appear one way and as long as we get something back in return. So who are we? Jesus reveals us to be primarily concerned with the external so that we appear one way where our hearts or something entirely different. And then what is that heart condition? Jesus reveals that heart condition to be far worse than we had ever anticipated. So he reveals us to actually be adulterers and murderers and liars and retaliators. This is who we are apart from the gospel. So who ought we become? Well, Jesus... In his new law, in the law of Christ, ups the ante for what righteousness is. So some people, some commentators call this section that we've just gone through the antitheses section of the Sermon on the Mount. So things that are antithetical. Moses says this, you've heard it said, but I'm telling you, I say to you something different from that. Something in contradiction. I read one commentator this week who said, these aren't antitheses, these are actually superthesis, superthesis, right? So G- Moses says one thing, and so I'm not, contra- I'm not contradicting that, I'm swallowing it up into my law, and I'm upping the ante, I'm raising the bar for what righteousness really is. So he says in verse 20, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the, enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, who are the Pharisees? We are quick to denounce these, as, denounce these guys as the bad guys of the day, and certainly Jesus denounces them often, so we're not completely unjustified. But who were they? These were the religious good guys of the day. They were trying their hardest to protect the law of God the true Jewish religion, the worship of God from the onslaught 
of Greek and Roman religion and culture that was pounding and chipping away. And so they were trying their hardest to be obedient to what it is that God is calling them to be or to do. So I think what Jesus is saying in 20 is that it is impossible for you to be more externally righteous than the Pharisees are right now. There's nothing, they keep the law perfectly, if we want to say that. They, they do everything that is required of them. So it seems to me that what Jesus is going after is the only way to have an exceeding level of righteousness, a more exceeding level of righteousness than that, is to change the, the heart behind it, the motivations behind it. That he seems to be saying that our hearts and our thoughts glorify God just as much as our actions do. And then skipping ahead to the very end, and we're going to come back in just a minute, but skipping ahead, Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect. I don't think we, I don't think we have the perfect uh, English interpretation for this Greek word. The Greek word is teleos, and we don't have a, really, don't have a great word for it. But it's more of the idea of completeness, wholeness, thoroughness, purity, teleosness, where it seems that Jesus is saying, I couldn't care less about your external action unless there's no inward transformation behind it. So your heart, your thought, your mind, and your soul must all worship and glorify, glorify God in perfection, and wholeness, and teleosness. I think he's also, though, calling us to a higher level of perfection, that we should be perfect and holy, just as his Father, our Father God in heaven, is perfect and holy. So he's calling us to something higher. So there is some sense that we are, I think he's encouraging us, or demanding of us, that we should pursue holiness. We put in effort to become more like him, more like God. So, what does this look like? Again, going back to our anger section, 21 through 26, Jesus tells us instead of hateful murderers, we are to love. Listen to this quote from Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. Jesus is giving us a revelation of the preciousness of human beings. He means to reveal the value of persons. Obviously, merely not killing others cannot begin to do justice to that. Do you hear what he's saying? If Jesus is calling us to value individual humanity and preciousness of another person, we don't do that just by not killing them, right? He's calling us to something greater. So though we ought not be angry, contemptuous, and malicious, that's not the point. So here, as elsewhere in this talk, in the Sermon on the Mount... We need to put the idea of laws, that is the Mosaic law, entirely out of our minds. Jesus is working at a much deeper level of the source of actions, good and bad. Jesus is going after our hearts, not about what we do. So we are to become people whose outward actions and internal reality are in perfect accord. That the murderous impulse in our heart is killed off. We love those who oppose us and who make us angry. Instead of lustful adulterers, Jesus is calling us to be pure. He's calling us to become one whose heart's desires 
our purity and who, one who values that one flesh union so highly with your spouse that that adulterous heart impulse is killed off. Not merely doing what the external law requires. Now, incidentally, a bit of a side, what about this cutting off hands and gouging out eyes business? Should we, should we follow this? Literally, is Jesus actually telling us to cut off our hands? I had a classmate at Southern Seminary who came from a rural Kentucky church, and there was a man in his hometown who had actually gouged out both eyes because he could not stop lusting after, after women. Well, was he being obedient? Is this what Jesus is demanding of all of us? I don't think so. I think Jesus is saying... You who think that keeping laws can make you righteous, that you who are concerned with the external only, if you're going to be that way, then you had better be consistent and you had better cut off your hands and you had better gouge out your eyes so that it will be impossible for you to externally do the act. But kind of an implied question might be, is it possible for a one-eyed man to lust? Yes. Yes. Is it possible for that man in Kentucky, while he has no eyes, to still lust? Yes. He has images stored in his brain from before when he could see. He can fantasize new ones. He can do anything he wants to with his head, even though he can't visibly see, because there's no heart transformation behind it. So it doesn't seem to me that we should interpret this literally, But it seems to me that Jesus is saying, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm not prescribing a new list of to-dos that you can check off. I'm telling you who to be. Okay? So our marriage and divorce section. Jesus is very serious about the marital covenant. And it seems to me what he's saying is, look, don't be so concerned that what you are doing and how you appear to the community around you is in accordance with the law, is righteous. So don't put on the appearance that your marriage is great and you guys are just falling more and more in love with each other every day and then when you get home, if we could be a fly on the wall, your marriage is in shambles and you're spiteful to each other and you yell at each other and you are unloving. But to us, it looks great. Jesus seems to be saying, actually, Do the hard work of marriage. Actually treat your marital covenant the same way that I treat my marital covenant to the church, to you. That of sacrificial love. Be just as concerned with your heart condition as what you're trying so desperately to portray to those around you. This oath-taking section. Again, do we have to practically and literally obey Jesus Jesus in this, where we will say that we will never become a witness in the court of law like the Quakers and the Mennonites. They're, They're trying their hardest to obey Jesus literally, so that's why they don't do that. Is this what he's asking of us? I think this is, again, similar to that eye gouging bit, that Jesus is telling us who to be rather than what to do that a disciple of Jesus should be known for his honesty and his truthfulness. He's going to say in just a few chapters, in chapter 12 of Matthew, that for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
that your words are an indicator, an exterior indicator of what's internally already present. That your mouth is like a spigot, a water spigot on your house. The, the spigot does not produce water. The water is right behind it in the pipes in your house. All the spigot does is release the water. It opens what's already there. Your mouth is an indicator. It's just waiting to release what's already behind it, what's already in your heart. So are your words indicative of a transformed heart? External and internal alignment. We're not to be retaliators, not to be vengeful. Jesus is calling us to be humble in verses 38 through 42. So this whole go the extra mile business, Roman law allowed Roman soldiers to demand of those that they were occupying, in this case the Jews, to carry their equipment, their shields or their packs or whatever it was, for a thousand paces, a mile. So what Jesus is saying to 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 them and to us, if someone rightfully and legally has the right to demand something of you, don't be so quick to defend your own honor, your personal dignity, but actually love that person and take it 2,000 paces. Take it two miles. But is it possible for you to begrudgingly and unlovingly go that second mile? Yes. What God and Jesus desire is not begrudging obedience to a new law that he has prescribed, but a heart that loves those around them. Similar in this turn-the-other-cheek passage. Have you ever thought about this? How is it that a right-handed person would strike your right cheek? Well, it must be a backhand. So I think the image, this mental picture that Jesus is painting for us, is that of an insult. The only way that you would ever backhand someone in the face is if you were just insulting them. So Jesus is saying, when someone is insulting you, do not be so quick to defend your own honor and personal dignity. He's saying we are to be meek, like Moses, that we are more concerned with the defense of God's honor and his reputation than our own. So does this mean, again, that we must be pacifists? I don't think so. Is it possible to be an unloving pacifist? Yes. Is it possible to turn the other cheek and be seething with anger as you do so? Yes. Jesus is not prescribing us a new to-do list, but he's challenging us to be the same way externally or be the same way internally as we are externally, to love those who oppress us or oppose us. And then in our final section here, I think all of the previous sections can be summed up in this, that the people of God should be known for an inexplicable love. Not like the Gentiles who only love if the return on the investment is good, but people who give generously with our time and our money people who serve those around us who oppose us or or are antagonistic towards us. We love inexplicably. So let me ask you, where can you identify an inexplicable love in your life?
Jesus is calling you to be is those who love recklessly, just as he does to, to us. So if the law of Christ is this, Jesus then sums up later in our book, in Matthew 22, he sums up the law in this, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Inteliosness. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. Or if I could sum up his summation, that the law of Christ then is passion for God, externally and internally, and compassion for people. Externally and internally. And this is who Jesus is telling us that we ought to become. So who are we? We're much worse off than we had ever expected. Our heart condition is rotting. And who God is calling us to be is much greater than we ever expected. A level of righteousness that we hadn't expected or anticipated. And to be honest, it's kind of daunting, right? As I prepared and am even preaching right now, this is kind of convicting for me because this is not me. My external and internal are often not perfectly aligned. I don't often or always have uh, external and internal passion for God and compassion for people. So what does that mean? How do we get there? How do we become that which Jesus is calling us? Well, our third question, how do we get there? Jesus gives us two things. He gives us new hearts. The two great new covenant promises in the Old Testament from Ezekiel 36, God says that he gives us new hearts that replace our dead and hard and cold hearts of stone, and he replaces them with a heart of flesh that actually is alive to Christ and wants to begin to obey him. So he gives us a new heart. That's why I called this or titled this sermon uh, A New Law for New Hearts. Jesus gives us his new law, but it would be futile for him to give us a new law had he not also given his people new hearts that were alive to obey, obey the new law. And then in Jeremiah 31, he says that the new law of Christ is written on our new hearts. So the law is now written on our new hearts. So the first thing that Jesus gives us is a new heart. So we begin to desire to obey him. We begin to have true passion for God internally and externally and compassion for people. But the second thing that he gives us is his righteousness. Enough so that Paul can write in 2 Corinthians 5 that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So not only at the cross does Jesus take our sin from us, but then he gives us his own righteousness. I've asked the kids across the hall this before. But is there anything that you can do right now, good or bad, to affect Jesus' already perfect and completed, finished record before God? The life that you should have lived, he perfectly had passion for God, perfectly had compassion for people, and it's finished. Is there anything that I can do now 
good or bad, to affect his standing before God? Clearly no. Well, if that standing, if that record of righteousness is now credited to me, to you who are in Christ, then is there anything good or bad that I can do to affect my standing from God, before God? Clearly no. This is why we are freed from shame and from guilt, freed from trying to um, perform our way into God's acceptance. God is pleased with you if you are in Christ because he is pleased with Christ. So how does that knowledge of Jesus giving us his righteousness change who we are? How does this answer the question of who ought we become? Well, the answer is just to believe in it, to rest in Jesus' righteousness. He says his yoke is easy and his burden is light because he's done the hard work for us. He's lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. And so we trust, rest, and believe in it. I've heard a pastor give an illustration that this is like, let's imagine that we have a a ninth grade girl attending her first week of school, and she goes into her honors English class on the first day. And from the very outset of the class, she realizes this is going to be too much. It's going to be too hard. She's not a very good writer. She doesn't really like to read, and it's just going to be too much for her. So she goes to the teacher after the class is over, and she says, I really need to get out. I think I need to get into the regular English class. And the teacher's like, all right, well, how about this? How about today, on the first day, I just give you an A-plus for the year so that every report card that you get has an A-plus on it. Your transcript when you graduate will have an A-plus on it. On your college applications, you will have an A-plus for my class. Would you stay? She says, sure. That sounds like a great deal. So at the beginning of the year, she's still, she's, she's not concerned about performing, doing good work or bad work, but she's still kind of writing not very good papers. They're still about the same as, as they were when she started. But then as she begins to realize that no matter what she does, good or bad, is not going to affect her final grade, by the end of the year, guess what? She's producing and turning in A-plus work because she's beginning to take on the identity of an A-plus student. She has the identity of an A-plus student, so she begins to produce A-plus work. Apart from the gospel, do you have an A-plus record? No, it's failing. It is F minus. Jesus has exposed us for that. But if you are in Christ, what is your record? You are an A plus student because Jesus performed his way into an A plus 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 record before God and then he has given it to you. Now, now that you are an A plus student, you are free from having to earn your grade. You're free from having to perform your way into an A-plus at the end of the year. No amount of good work or bad work is going to affect your grade. Now just freely live into your identity as an A-plus student. You are an A-plus student. Now live into that identity so that as we progress, as we grow, we begin to produce A-plus work. 
We begin to love God more passionately. We begin to love people more compassionately just because we are free to live into that identity that he has given us. You don't have to work for your grade any longer. Trust in his righteousness and believe in it. Amen?